everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Tiffany Caban. Last year, she nearly pulled off a tremendous victory for the progressive prosecutor movement, a career public defender who ran to make transformative change in Queens and was supported by, among others, Sean King and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Welcome to our show, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. So what are you doing these days? Ah, Sometimes I feel like the question is like, what are you doing these days? Um, But the bulk of my work is with the the Working Families Party. I took a position as um, a national political organizer. They for uh, if you're not familiar with the Working Families Party, it, it is, you know, the, a, a political home where they are working. We are working very, very hard to build a multiracial working class movement um, to be the party of, of the left and, and support working class folks. Uh, and for the first time, we are dedicating an entire program to electing progressive decarceral DAs around the country. So I have a hand in helping to, to build out that framework uh, and, you know, the messaging and the, and the values that we want to push forward. And for me, that was super, super exciting because when I think about building a multiracial working class movement, well, we got to start with bringing our people home. And, you know, the, the criminal legal system and our, and our DA's offices are, are very much so at the center of that. So are you working in specific campaigns or are you just doing the overarching theme? So we are um, a political party. Uh, we, you know, we go into places where we have a presence and we have coalition partners, community-based organizations that are doing work on the ground and we talk with them and get a sense of if there is a, a candidate there that um, is running, that values align, that is, is going to be, is progressive, is going to be accountable to folks in our, in our movement and we uplift them, we help them. We give them any training and support that we need and, and we support their campaign. So, you know, we helped out. We were one of the many um, organizations that uh, supported Taysa Boudin and his run. Um, in fact, it, it kind of was like the, the perfect transition to come to WFP because after my race, um, I, you know, it was hard and I, I, I felt like I needed to move. I needed to do something. And so I got on a plane and I went to San Francisco to campaign and, and try to help Taysa as much as I could. We recently supported um, Audia Jones and uh, also Jose Garza, who very excitingly, you know, won the popular vote, but there still is a, a runoff. So that's coming up and we continue to support his campaign. And we are looking at and identifying and supporting uh, other campaigns as, as well. 
Yeah, we talked to Jose a few weeks ago, so that was an exciting uh, outcome the other night. Yes, he's great. I, you know, not too long before E Day, um, I went down there and we had some good conversations. But more than that, I got to spend some time with him and his family. And you know, Jose is is the real deal, and he's one of those people that it, there is something very, very special that happens when you have somebody from a public defense background that runs for for district attorney. So, um, you know, not to bring up bad memories, but I did want to talk a little bit about your race and how it was that you ended up uh, coming up just shy in that one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Uh, I still, and I think it's healthy and okay, because I, I certainly channel it in my work. I'm, I'm still frustrated by it. I'm still disappointed by it. I'm still angry around it. You know, I think that we did a lot of really, really great things and when you look at how we started, right, I'm, I was a, a career public defender with no, you know, political ties, no fancy consultants, no, no money in my bank account up against um, the, the establishment pick, the, the machine pick um, with over a million dollars in, in her war chest. And we built something really, really incredible. So at the same time, while there are some of those feelings, overwhelmingly, I feel good about what we did. Some really great things have come out of it. I've said it a lot uh, post-campaign, but sometimes even when you lose, you win. Uh, I look at the, the broad coalition we built. Um, you know, one of my proudest moments on, on the campaign trail was the day that we stood, we had this big rally, stood alongside um, endorsers from organizations where literally I was side by side with formerly incarcerated folks sex workers, undocumented immigrants saying that they were getting behind our vision and, and what we wanted to put forth in the district attorney's office. And then also having these very people partner with communities and organizations that, that where relationships didn't exist. You know, we had um, groups from, from other parts of, of the borough, for example, pairing up that, you know, we had middle class, um, upper middle class white moms uh, working with our undocumented communities, working with uh, our super leftist abolitionist folks that were supporting us. And that really broad coalition that came together, they're still in relationship, they still talk, they're still organizing together. And that is a really, really beautiful thing to have come out of the race. And then not only that, but, you know, this opportunity with, with WFT, it's essentially allowed me and, and us to take what we ran on and it nationally. A, a large part of the work that we are doing is really shifting the narrative and pulling back the curtain and talking about the ways uh, and, and having bigger platforms to talk about the ways that our criminal legal system does not work uh, and how we should be centering public health uh, solutions to a lot of the things that we have criminalized over decades, whether it is you know poverty, mental health issues, or, or substance use disorder. So I think a lot of uh, good came came out of it and it was one of the most important profound um, experiences of, of my life for sure and I'm, I'm definitely grateful for it so how do you end up going from basically you know an unknown uh kind of you know uh, person challenging the establishment to nearly upsetting this candidate who's backed by everybody who is anyone in new york People power. I, I mean, it, it is. I, I think my race is just one of the best examples of the power of 
grassroots organizing and centering directly impacted folks. What we did in my race certainly was in a lot of ways we expanded the electorate. We had people that, that came out to vote that normally don't um, and were excited to come out and vote for a district attorney. A lot of people don't even know you vote for your, your DA. But I think really what carried our campaign and allowed us to have the success that we did was our commitment and relationships um, and like the, the accountability models we had in place. People felt heard. They were allowed to make the, the campaign their own. And it grew very, very quickly. Like a lot of people think that our campaign took off when um, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez endorsed and senators. Um, Sanders and, and Warren endorsed and the New York Times endorsed and like, yes, that was great. It, it definitely helped. But for the folks that are on the inside, you know, for all of our hundreds and hundreds of volunteers and supporters, I mean, we could feel the energy building, the groundswell building well before that. Like, we knew that there was going to be a moment where it popped um, because we were just in such close relationship. We were going into these into communities and having conversations. We were doing these forums and these debates. And it was really clear to see over time that, you know, not just were, I mean, people were clearly very quickly moving to meet us where we were at policy-wise, which was another win from the campaign because there were commitments that were made in our, in our race that never would have been made if we hadn't been present. Uh, so we were controlling the conversation. We were winning the debates. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, we set the benchmark. One of the very last debates that we had, it was on the it's Brian Lehrer on a, a radio show here in, in, in New York City. And I remember the question he asked was, Tiffany Caban has this do not prosecute list. What, what, what do the rest of you think about it? And for me, that was a, a moment uh, where you could really see the way that we, we were controlling the conversation um, in the race. And I think also the other really key piece to it is how we built the policy platform. A lot of times folks work backwards and you start from, you know, the, the academics and the staff studies, but we really did the inverse. I, I ran because of my experiences as a public defender, because of my experiences in my community growing up in an over-policed, over-criminalized, resource-starved community. And so I sat down to write my policy platform on my couch and every single policy had a, a client attached to it, a face, a family, a story. And from there, I took those, those policies and ideas and I brought them to the, the directly impacted folks, to the people that were parts of community-based organizations that were doing the work. So when it came to, um, you know, substance use disorder and decriminalizing sub drug use, I went to uh, organizations like Vocal um, who were doing that work or, you know, when I was doing the policy for sex work, I went to Decrim New York and Red Canary Songs, organizations that are founded and led by current and former sex workers. And then from there, I went to, you know, the foremost academic voices in our in, in the field on these things, whether they were the John Fafts or the Leo Bleskis of the world. And the amazing thing is, is that it, it always lines up. People who are directly impacted, they know what they need. They know what the solutions should be. Uh, and the, the, the research, you know, supports it. Um, and I think that engaging in that process also sets you up for the kind of, of impact and success that we had. So when you started out, did you know that this was going to work? Did you, did you have this feeling or, or, or were you just 
No Can idea. You, no idea. <laughs> oh, I, I will say this. I, you know, I was, um, I, I born and raised in Queens. I live in Queens. I was practicing as a public defender in Manhattan and, you know, our, our, our current DA in Manhattan was a self-proclaimed progressive prosecutor, but I was in court every single day after these so-called progressive policies would come out and he'd get, you know, applauded for them and it'd be in the media. And consistently, my clients would be the exception to the rule. It was always my, my predominantly black or, or brown or uh, immigrant or queer or, or poor clients that were the exception to the rule. And it was sort of like a perfect storm of, of an environment seeing folks like Larry Krasner and Rachel Rollins and, and Tim Fox doing what they were doing. Uh, and then also in Queens, seeing the success of, of somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, of progressive women of color like um, Jessica Ramos and Julia Salazar. It just felt like we had a moment where I, I didn't come in that I could win, but I, I felt that there was at least an opportunity to call people out, right? And really set the record straight and, and hold people's feet to the fire and uplift my clients' voices and those of the communities that have been most hurt and harmed by our criminal legal system. And for me, that was that was worth it. And and then very quickly it changed into something else of like, oh, we we can win. And so we're gonna try to win this thing. It's really interesting. I've been having conversations with uh progressive prosecutor candidates literally across the country. I've probably interviewed 15 to 20 now. And it, it's a very impressive group of people. They speak very well. They uh, And they're very grounded in their local communities. Uh, it, it's kind of this interesting phenomenon because it's a national movement, but it's really rooted in the local communities. But how, how do you take the energy and the passion and these ideas and turn it into something that can get people elected? You know, it's, I, I think a, a few pieces have to be present. We're seeing some success across the country, but um, one, there's nothing more powerful than, than pairing policy with storytelling. And to be able to do that effectively, it has to come from a place of, of personal experience and deep relationship with folks who are directly impacted and, and building trust there to be able to, to, to uplift and honor and, and tell those stories and, and center folks in the work. Um, you know, I think that that's really powerful when it comes to scaling these movements, but then it's also the infrastructure of how you organize and your campaign culture and all of those things. There has to be a feeling of an ability to, to engage in accountability practices, to engage in a certain level of co-governance, understanding that you are a vessel for others, um, and that you are there to, to serve them, um. And, you know, I, I think that those are probably some of the biggest ways that we can be most, the things to focus on if we're going to be really successful in building these broader movements. What do you see the key issue that people focused on that said, oh, okay, I'm going this way? You know, I don't think it was one key issue. In fact, it, it actually comes up in my conversations a lot when I talk to DA Kansas, which is like, you know, my job is to talk to as many DA candidates as I, I possibly can at this point. And the policies are really, they're important, but they're, they're secondary in a lot of ways. What's more important is, is your why, because without the right why, without the right 
serious change um, without being able to recognize what your goals are, those policies are not going to have the intended impact. Again, I, I point to my experiences practicing Manhattan under some people would argue some fairly progressive policies that were still devastating my clients. Um, you know, so I, I think what people really resonated with this idea that our system as it exists now not only is deeply unfair, but it doesn't provide us with, with safety, right? And and focusing on redefining what public safety is, and that stability equals public safety, that if we're doing what we can to keep people out of jails and stable and with their families, with access to housing, to healthcare, to mental health services, to job opportunities and education opportunities, it is literally the best way to keep our community safe. And that in so many ways, public health and the ability to have access to a really strong public health infrastructure is public safety uh, and the kind of making that shift and understanding that those were what our our goals were going to be. You know, but certainly we ran on policies that involved decriminalizing poverty, mental health, substance use. We ran and centered on ending cash bail. We you know, ran and centered on decriminalizing sex work, which, by the way, you know, people told me I was I was crazy for doing. But when we had conversations with folks, um, it people really, really were open and receptive to the fact that actually this made all the sense in the world when we think about it as a public health issue, a public safety issue, as a human rights and dignity issue, as a labor issue. Um, and, you know, by decriminalizing, we were going to get the best public safety outcomes. What do you see as the future of criminal justice reform? I'll tell you what I wish for the future of, of criminal justice reform, for criminal legal reform, is that we get to a place where we not only recognize that things like substance use disorder are a public health issue, a public health crisis, and not to be criminalized um, and, and punished and, and people incarcerated over, but that we get to a place where we start thinking about violence the same way and understanding that violence is a public health issue and that we need to be taking steps to build the kind of infrastructure that provides um, support for reparative experiences around trauma and allowing people to heal because, in all honesty, hurt people hurt people, right? Um, and so that's certainly my wish for the movement, so that we start thinking, have a, a complete paradigm shift, a narrative shift around how we view harm in the first place so that we can actually start using strategies that will help survivors and victims be made whole, but also help those who harm, um, those who offend, change behavior and, and live healthier, safer lives in, in the process. You know, my dream for, the crim for criminal legal reform is to say that we are going to work to, over time, completely divest from it and put everything into investing into a, a a really good public health infrastructure and accountability practices that um, really do say, well, when harm happens, we have to do something about it, but that something isn't throwing people in cages and stripping them of their humanity and dignity and creating the environment for harm to occur again. Now, when you start talking about harm, it starts to sound a lot like a restorative justice narrative. I mean, absolutely, we should be, and it, it, it's, what's 
interesting is that I find in in the the criminal justice reform space, um, you kind of have these mixed groups of folks, and you know sometimes you have people or elected or or legislate legislators that um, really don't have a deeper understanding of um, of restorative justice or transformative justice and what it actually means and how we engage in in those processes. So we absolutely should be um, investing in education around it and then investing in implementing it and, and scaling it. What's really cool is that, but at the same time, a little bit frustrating, is that in, in places where these practices are engaged in, in small sort of like catchment areas where they are given the kinds of resources that they need, they are so, so successful um, in terms of outcomes. You know, I, I even look at, this is a, a little bit different, but, you know, you look at um, violence interruption groups that are doing work with uh, folks that are at risk for for gun violence. And when they keep their catchment area small and have good ratios of, of street workers or peace workers to at-risk folks, it, they can completely eliminate um, death due to gun violence in their areas. But if they are asked to scale irresponsibly, um, they don't have as good of results. Although, mind you, those results are a lot better than what we're getting with um, police and, and district attorney interventions. And then you look at programs here in New York, for example, like Common Justice, which is um, programming for folks that are charged with, with only violent crimes, where they bring um, those who have been charged and committed violent acts against others together with those who they've harmed or their families um, or, you know, other individuals to engage in restorative justice practices together. And the amazing thing about that is survivors and, and victims, when given the option, over 90% of the time, they opt in. So it really completely erases this false binary that our, our carceral systems have sold us that, like, you know, we do this in the name of victims, um, when in reality, we've given victims these, these false choices between jail or nothing when we have avenues like common justice programs that show that there is another way to make survivors and victims whole that that also results in better public safety outcomes because again over you know 90 percent of the folks that participate in the program go on um to not to recidivate uh in those ways so um you know restorative justice transformative justice these are all things that we should be investing in scaling it, and getting a better understanding of what are your thoughts on improving police accountability? It's, it's huge. We have to do it. I, I said, you know, a million times over the course of, of my campaign that we have to make it entirely untenable for bad officers to stay employed. Officers who have um, histories of, of disciplinary problems, uh, of falsifying records, of lying under oath, of committing, uh, you know, assaults or crimes against community members. These are folks that should not be allowed to wear a badge. Uh, and that's, you know, that's in incredibly, incredibly important. And what are your thoughts on the current uh, bail reform fight in New York? I, when that pretrial package was passed, I just about cried because it felt that transformative. When you are a practitioner on the front lines every day, you know, you see the gamesmanship and the way that these rules 
uh, are weaponized against your your client. There is no fairness. You know, I I have tried cases where literally my client had bail set because they were too poor to to afford bail to buy their constitutional right to the presumption of innocence. And then the DAs withhold evidence and we go to a trial and we're literally getting evidence as witnesses are taking the stand. You know, that is not, uh, that's not fair and just system. And a lot of people don't know that that's actually what takes place in our, our criminal legal system. And I was really proud of the steps that we took. I think that we need to entirely end cash bail, but these were some really important steps. And so it's been really frustrating and disheartening um, to see conversations around rolling those back. Certainly was expected that we would have pushback from, um, you know, the bail bond industry, folks that are invested in our prison industrial complex, from um, the the NYPD and the and and their folks. Uh, but I. I'm really hoping that our elected stand strong because we we worked very, very hard for these reforms. We had so many people at the table to talk about them years leading up to these things being passed. We know that these are the reforms that that we need, that it works, uh, and that safety does not come at the expense of literally devastating or or safety for our our black and brown and our, our poor communities. So it's a fight that we're continuing to have. I'm really proud to be fighting with the coalition and the community groups uh, that are standing strong and demanding that changes not be made to our, our bail laws, and we're going to continue that fight. Well, bail is a really interesting issue for me because it's uh, it's come a long way in the last 10 years, but I still feel like people don't really understand the issue. I was just in a court last week, and the judge imposed a 500000 dollar bail on the person this is out in california and and his reasoning was that well you know i think if he could make the bail he'd he'd have to think twice before uh uh committing another crime and i'm like really (laughs) i mean this is a judge yeah well it it goes to show you you know a lot of a lot of folks think well the the judge is is um you know dispassionate is by far all all these different things uh but the same barriers to access to to those kinds of positions out in other fields exist in the legal field as well and so our bench certainly is not representative of our communities especially the communities that are, are most directly impacted and it's like you said a lot of it doesn't make sense you know First of all, when you are, as a defense attorney, the most important moment a lot of times in a case is that bail argument because you know that the most consequential thing that could happen in a case is whether your client is going to be incarcerated pre-trial or not. It's not about the strength of the evidence. It's not about how, you know, how many good things you have to say about your client. It's about whether they get to, to fight this case from the outside or inside. And it's so, um, you know, that it, it's so outcome determinative. And that's really mind-blowing to a lot of people, but that's the reality of our system as it stands. And the system just of where we say, hey, even in places where there's like half bail reform, well, for nonviolent um, misdemeanor offenses, if you're poor, if you're wealthy, you get to fight your case from the outside. Um, but if you are charged with a violent offense, for example, if you're poor, you're, 
you're going to be incarcerated, but if you're wealthy, you still get to buy your constitutional right to the presumption of innocence. And how is, is that fair in any way? And explain why it's so important to be able to fight your case from the outside. Yeah. I, so first of all, one night in jail is enough to have a generational impact, right? I, I mean, prolonged detention, it has an effect on not just you, but your children and potentially your children's children. You lose access to any services that you had, maybe your housing, um, connections to your children, uh, your your family. And a lot of that, that harm is irreparable sometimes. And they also create the conditions for, for continued harm. Um, but, you know, even beyond that, there's there's a rush that happens once you are incarcerated you're more inclined to take a plea deal to get out of jail even if it lands you with a criminal record that then hinders your job prospects going forward or then is going to be used against you uh in a custody hearing for your children uh but at that point you just want to get out of jail and so you have people taking pleas to crimes either that they they didn't commit or um you know to charges that aren't really appropriate or or applicable and it it happens very often. And finally, um, what do you see as the next steps for the movement? Uh, you know, I think that the, well, I guess it, it depends on how narrowly you're, you're viewing the movement. Are we talking about just uh, progressive or decarceral DAs in general or the mass incarceration movement? I, I would say the broader movement. Yeah, you know, I think what the goals have to be. I mean, this is, this is a, a movement that has been, it existed for decades long before I started doing the work. It will exist for decades after I start doing the work. And I think a lot of it is about, you know, continuing to, to use as many strategies as we possibly can to attack the problem from as many angles. It's about the inside game and the outside game. And so, yes, electoral work is, is, important and we should keep doing that work um, but we have to pair that with our outside organizing with mass protests with um, you know with mutual aid um, with just having conversations with our neighbors and communities and, and coalition building and and bringing you know more people into our movement and a lot of it also is you know we have to keep having this space to decarcerate because when we look at movements as a whole successful movements, they're led by the people most directly impacted. And so to, to be able to support folks and get them into leadership positions, we have to bring them home. We have to get them out of jail cells with their families and in a place where, where we are not feeling um, in acute crisis so that we can do these things. Because that's part of the problem too. I mean, you look at it in terms of politics as well. When you see the folks that are, are most disempowered politically, the, the people that have the most barriers to, uh, you know, political empowerment and don't engage in electoral work, a lot of it is because we are pulled in all of these these different directions and are constantly in survival mode um, that we aren't able to, to center that work. And so, you know, providing a, a broad base of support that we are, are doing that. Well, Tiffany, thank you so much for coming on our show. It's been great talking with you and hearing about your continued work in, uh, in the area of criminal justice reform. Thank you very, very much. 
This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Thank you to Tiffany Kavan for coming on, and we will be back next time for more episodes of Everyday Injustice. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.